You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. As every instructor knows, laboring through the school year is both rewarding and often exhausting. Professors struggle to balance lesson planning, committee work, teaching, and advising, while still trying to eke out enough time for their own research. We can become so easily burned out, especially when we've been doing this job for years. The struggle is even more real in fall 2020, as COVID has upended all of our usual routines and created so much anxiety for our students and ourselves. At a time like this, we need the counsel of sage, experienced mentors to help us navigate the academic life, and sometimes that counsel can be found on our bookshelf. Joining me today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Christina Bieber-Lake, a contributor to the Christian Feminist Podcast and longtime friend of the network. We're going to be talking about her new book, The Flourishing Teacher, Vocational Renewal for a Sacred Profession. Welcome, Christina. Well, thanks for having me. Always good. So I want to jump right in and actually talk about the kind of motivation behind it, because in your introduction to this book, you mentioned that you wrote it because it's the type of book that you would have wanted to read. And why do you think it, it's so necessary for, for teachers to read a book like this? Yeah, I, I remember, I think I talked about this in the book too, how Toni Morrison, that's how she ended up writing The Bluest Eye. And I remember resonating with that. And when I teach that, I always think, yeah, you know, you really want to have a book that you see yourself in that helps you to place yourself in some way, but then also encourages or inspires you. Now, I know Toni Morrison wouldn't say that, that the bluest eye was somehow encouraging, but in this case, um, I wanted teachers to feel encouraged and inspired. All of the things that I needed to have and always have needed to have come the month that shall be not, not be named, which is August, which we happen to be in the middle of right now. So I just, I just thought that's what I need, and that's the kind of book that I want to write the kind of book that you would put on your soul shelf, as we'll talk about later probably, um, that you would want to pick up and that would be so practical that you would feel, oh, I can easily do that, or that's a small fix. Um, oh, yeah, what I do is valuable. All of those things all kind of wrapped together. So just the stuff that was inspiring to me is what I tried to put in there. And you mentioned talking about the, the first chapter about August. Let's actually, let's talk about that for a second, because... Um, often, I feel like with academic books, it's kind of organized around ideas in some way, but you chose mm-hmm. to organize the book around the months of the year. Why did you feel like that would be the best kind of um, scheme for this book? Yeah, I got the idea from Gretchen Rubin and her book, The Happiness Project. Uh, it, the wisdom of that approach immediately struck me uh, for that book, but much more for my own book as I was, it just kind of all came to me and really I kind of want to say it came to me in one day, but it was kind of like that. I just knew that that was going to be the structure simply because when I had the idea to write the book, it was August. And I recognized that the way that I felt then was not the same thing that I felt in January or February or March, not even close and certainly not September, you know? So I thought this makes the most sense. People have different needs at different times. Plus, I thought it would be really great to have a book that, you you know, if you just needed that little bit of extra encouragement, you could say, oh, wait a minute. I remember that she wrote a chapter about that month and the particular challenges of that month. Maybe I'll just read that right now and it'll get me out of this funk. So I, I just thought it seemed like completely apropos to the topic because a teacher's life is so seasonal, so seasonal. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I found it really helpful. I actually, I did read the book through from beginning to end, but I thought it was really great the way that each chapter stood alone enough that like you say in the introduction, if you, you know, if you get the book in November and you want to start reading in November, you should do that. And you can do that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was super helpful. I also really appreciated the part in the introduction where you kind of also laid it out a little bit in terms of ideas. Like if you, if you need encouragement, try these chapters. If you're you know wanting to think about putting procedures in place to help you self help yourself be more organized, try these two chapters or whatever. Mm -hmm. That was super helpful too. So it's a really um, accessible book in terms mm -hmm. of just finding your way through it and being able to read at it if you don't sit down and read it all in one go. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, well, teachers don't have a lot of time, right? We need to be able to get those quick bits of help and mostly encouragement and inspiration, right? I just happen to be encouraged and inspired when people give me an idea that really makes sense to me. So I wanted to have that to be a part of it as well, right? So not just kind of sorry, the dogs are going nuts, not just ideas about like lofty inspirational themes, but actually here's something that you can do in your class right now. I find that inspiring. So I wanted to be able people to be able to find those access points really quickly. So if somebody's just like, you know, I've just had it with email that, uh, that they would know exactly where in the book to go to talk about some ideas about that. I, I really, really appreciated that, that stuff too. I'm, I'm a very logistical person. So I loved that. And, and I get very frustrated if I'm reading something that is mainly theoretical, particularly if it's related to pedagogy or teaching, but if it's purely right. theoretical and there's no kind of practical, how would this actually work? Um, yes. that, that always bothers me. So I loved that you gave so much specific information. Um, now I, as to whether or not I am, you know, necessarily doing any of this <laughs> I thought when I was reading it I thought man my inbox would fill Christina with horror <laughs> no, my email I've box seen them all. <laughs> so many unread emails um but uh, and actually um that makes me think of of another question I want to ask you which is that you're right when you talked about it being practical and not just not just inspirational or not just theoretical that was going to be my next question is I mean this text to me felt by turns philosophical but also theological um because you were doing some some Bible exegesis at different points. It's pedagogical. It's also intensely personal and it's immensely practical. And that was, and it, but it somehow it all works together. So how did you balance <laughs> all those different varying tones and, and modes? Well, you know, I think that's such a great question, Katie. And I really think that the answer is that that's just me. That's just the space that I live in. There is no way in which the theory, and I love theory, I love philosophy. Anybody who's heard me on any of the shows on the network knows that I can get down and dirty with Derrida. You know, I love that stuff. But for me, it's pointless unless it becomes a question of how should I then live, right? Uh, that's the point of philosophy to me. And that's the point of theology is how do I get to know God? What does it mean to be close to him? And so if your vocation is to be a teacher, then it makes sense that all of that should work together, right? Like I, to me, it's just a, a seamless kind of uh, connection. So that's just the place that I live. So I, it, it just, this is probably my purest voice. I mean, yeah, I have an academic voice. I've written three academic books, but this was by far the easiest book that I ever wrote because it's just me and my experience. Um, but my experience includes thinking deeply about theoretical and philosophical and theological things. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and you're right. I'm reading this 
as a person who spent, you know, a good bit of time in conversation with you, it really, reading this book really did feel like talking to you. I, Ooh, yeah, you know, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Yes. And, and it, and it did, it made it feel, um, like it well it, it's like it would be like if if i sat down with a friend and a friend was just telling me well here's how i tackle whatever this problem is you know and that is what i was looking for exactly that's what i re- resonate with right yeah yeah well i think so often people are hesitant to give specifics in something like a book because everyone in your audience that you're writing to has a different situation it may or may not work right. for them so sometimes people just go ah, i just won't give any specific solutions i won't say anything right concrete. so i i really appreciated that you went there and said here's here are concrete things that i do and that your friends do and so did you that was the other thing another thing i forgot to put on the question list but i wanted to ask you is were your friends did you have to ask all of your friends is it okay if i talk about what you do also or include information yes were they were they really willing to share the benefit of their experience too? Yes. um, And I was, if there was anything personal in there, I gave, I mean, of course my writing group, right. Who I mentioned all the various members of my writing group, I gave them the chapters where I mentioned them. Um, They're loosely hidden by their, behind their code names, but everybody knows who they are. (laughs) Code names are great. I thought that was really fun. You know, and then I asked people, well, do you think it's okay for me to share the story about my colleagues? deaths and you know I didn't really go into that I just went into my experience of it so that seemed fine to me but I did ask you know various people about their opinions about talking about that you know because yeah but so if I gave a specific idea that came from a particular colleague if I named that colleague I certainly um, asked them for the permission to do that yeah so um one of the things that is right at the beginning of the book that I, I found to be really interesting and not something I thought about a ton is you talk in chapter two about the importance of being a student of your own energy. What does that mean? Yes, this is probably one of the most important things that I have to offer in this book is the understanding that the issue is not time. The issue is never how much time we have. Time is actually pretty flexible in a lot of ways. And most of us actually do have the time to do the things that we want to do. What we don't have the time, what we don't have is enough energy. And I also struggled with just, I have a lower amount of energy than other people did, particularly when I didn't know that I was depressed. I wasn't until after I had a baby that I really figured out how depressed I was. So I had my normal amount of depression, which I didn't know was depression. And then I had the postpartum stuff added to it. So I finally did something about it. And when I did, I, it was like, oh, my goodness, I was seriously depressed. And the way that it expressed itself was in low energy. Mm-hmm. So for years, I had low energy. Like, I mean, it would be not unlike Flannery O'Connor, who was physically ill. She'd write in the morning. She'd uh, entertain guests in the afternoon. And then she would just quit for the, for the evening because that was all she could do you know, um, and that would be a good day. That's the kind of the way it was for me too. And I would have to exercise just to build my energy, like just to get the serotonin pumping. So Mm, I was, uh, I forced myself to exercise. I ran for 20 years by saying, if I run today, I don't have to run tomorrow. You know, I mean, a very high willpower person for a long time, um, because I had to be, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't like it. It was a, it was a struggle and it's so much better now. But all this to come back to say that you got to know when your high energy times are and you have to know how to capitalize on those 
otherwise you'll never get enough rest and you'll be stuck in this kind of loop of I'm busy all the time, which I think most professors are and it's and parents of young kids in particular and are trying to do both. And it's really deadly. You know, it's just life is is too short to be caught in that working all the time kind of mentality. And so being a student of your own energy is the first step, I think, to figuring out where do I put my maximum focus um, at what times of the day. And in fact, I've got a whole section on this in the, the uh, fall retreat that I've put together. And I don't know if we're going to talk about that because um, it's actually only available for a little time on teachable.com. But there's a whole section on what it means to be a student of your own energy. And that's that's because I just felt like that's so important. Uh, for people to figure out. Do you want to, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that though, since this is a natural point to talk about the retreat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, but so much of where I am in my career, um, after 20 plus years of teaching, I mean, I taught college for, this is my 22nd year of teaching college, but I also taught high school. I'm at that point in my career where they, they taught, they call it a your legacy years, it's kind of like, well, how do you, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? And yeah, my scholarly work is important to me, but I was like, this is, this is in me to do consulting and coaching. I'm kind of a natural educator, coach, consultant. And so this book just poured out of me because of that. And then after it was completely done, the pandemic hit and there's never been a greater need for teachers to be encouraged and yet all these different colleges are spending all their time training them in technology and no faculty development for encouragement or anything like that. So I was unable to focus on scholarly work, scholarly work. And I know I'm not alone. Like as soon as the pandemic hit, focus became a problem. So the scholarly projects that I had lined up for the summer, I couldn't, I literally couldn't do them. So I was like, well, what can I do? I'm going to put together this retreat and it's a video retreat. It's kind of like Michael Hyatt's best year ever. Have you seen that? No. Uh-uh. Uh, you know, Michael Hyatt, is, um, one of my friends says he's so Nashville. He's just very slick. Uh, it's very, you know, highly produced. Mine is not highly produced, but it's but it's authentic. Um, but it's it's a series of videos that are meant to be done over the course of a weekend where he just kind of challenges you uh, about goal setting, about, you know, uh, doing affirmations and things like that. So it's based on that kind of format. Um, so rather than reading a book, it's kind of like you watch a series of videos and it helps you to work through various things that I think are important, um, to dedicate the time for that and ask questions and has time for journaling and stuff like that. It was super fun to do, but it did take me all summer. Um, so I've been trying to, to find my audience for that. And it's not easy because I just published this book. So I don't, and I have a website, but I don't have the natural audience for it. So part of the reason why I wanted to do this conversation is that well, maybe some people could hear about this retreat and I might be interested in taking it. Um, it's really kind of boiling down all my best stuff um, into a video, into a video format. So if you're interested in it, <clears throat> just go to my website, ChristinaBieberLake.com, and you can find links through there. Awesome. And we'll be sure to put uh, a link in the show notes for this interview too yes so people can find it really easily Uh, yeah when I looked through it myself I was I thought man you you really did capture all the main points of the book too so that you know if somebody felt like you said if somebody felt like I can't sit down and read right now you know you can get all the main ideas by watching the the added section of zoom like (laughs) what are the things that I've learned from 
<laughs> the uh, being dropped into the Zoom room, right? Yes. So yes. there's a whole section on that, which I thought was be immediately important. And I just really talked to my colleagues, like, what did you find that was useful? Uh, and represented that. So I think it, it you know, when this, you said that things that are going to be in the retreat are a lot of the same things in the book. And I think that that, that section about figuring out your own energy and using it to your to best effect and, and explicitly saying it's the goal should not be to be busy all the time is really important because I think especially young academics in graduate school, there's yeah. almost this weird competitive busyness thing where people almost in conversation will kind of try to one up each other like on who's the most busy or, you know, who's had to pull an all-nighter this week and it's not very healthy i think it's extremely um, unhealthy and yes that is not just an academic thing that is like american culture problem Anne marie slaughter talks about that and i mentioned her book in my books um unfinished business i think I love it's that called book. Love yeah it. because she puts her finger on that exactly there's this kind of macho i can't remember she's macho something um, like I had less sleep than you this week and I did more work and you, you know, and it's not on purpose, like not actually a competition, but that's the way it comes off. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you can't be haggard and show that you're haggard, you're not working hard enough, hard enough. That's absurd. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. No way to live. And I think I even said this in my book. It's like, that's one thing to do when you're an undergraduate and you're just kind of trying to figure out how to even be a scholar and how to do all this work that's being thrown at you. It's quite another when it's your life. Yes. And especially if you, like you said, at different stages of the academic life, if you you may or may not be balancing other things too. In graduate school, you know, we were mainly dealing with work, teaching, writing, you know, but, mm-hmm. and, and some of, I mean, some of my grad school classmates did already have family responsibilities, kids, things like that, mm-hmm. but most did not. Most of us, you know, didn't have that additional demand on time. And I thought it was, it was helpful. And I, it's funny, that's something I did without realizing I was doing it when I was trying to finish my dissertation. Um, and we mm-hmm. had a couple of small children as I, for, I spent a time beating myself up for not working every day on my dissertation. And then I thought, mm. this is not serving me because that's not how I work best. Cause I figured out what works best for me is to once or twice a week, leave my home and See? go sit in the library for three hours. Like, See? You know, yeah. You were a student of your own energy and how you work best, you know? Yeah. And I talk about that in the section on the retreat, especially about taking the Sabbath and why to do that and to have a Sabbath mentality which means not just like, oh, these 24 hours I stop working, but finding out what works best for you. And for you, it wasn't working on your dissertation every day. You know, yeah. for me, it was only working on it in the morning. And by morning, I would mean like 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then I would stop and I would only read. And then in the evening, I never worked. And I, I still do that now, you know, because that's how I work best. It rejuvenates me for the next day's worth of work. Now, occasionally you have deadlines or whatever and then you have to do work when you don't want to work you know may have to do work when you don't want to work but quite frankly if you work at the top of your energy in the way that works best for you and get enough sleep and enough rest you don't need to worry about deadlines and pushes and there there never needs to be another all-nighter ever you know yeah no I'm not talking about having kids who you have to you know stay up in the middle of the night and feed them or whatever that's a different issue and altogether you know I just want to be very clear about that I'm very sympathetic uh, uh, for people who are in that tough situation you know well and even Um, then I think sometimes people can 
I, I, we've had a few friends who turned that to their advantage. Our friend Nathan on the Christian Humanist uh, Radio Network, when his, I remember somebody telling me that when his, he was writing his dissertation, maybe one of his kids was still a baby and would be awake for like two hours in the middle of the night every night. Like that was just the baby sleep pattern. So he would wear mm. the baby and he would write on his dissertation in the middle of the night. Like while the house was <laughs> quiet and it worked for him. I, yes. you know, so he was uh, not only a student of his own energy, he was a student of his baby's energy. <laughs> right. I know. And he kind of used it to his advantage to give him, you yeah. know, he took that quiet time. Um, that was what I was, I was floored. <laughs> I thought you're a warrior. That's amazing. That um, is amazing. So I wanted to talk for a minute about uh, chapter five, cause I, that was one of the most impactful for me. Chapter five titled Christian mindfulness, specifically mm-hmm. the part about making mindful decisions. So can mm-hmm. you talk just a little bit about what does it mean to make mindful decisions and how does that help us thrive as academics? Yeah, I like that question a lot because it, this is something that just comes with, well, I'm, I've always been a kind of a problem solver and somebody who thinks really hard about uh, my life and how I'm living it and am I living it in the best way possible. And that is a shortcut for the term mindfulness, right? It's like, the larger sense of the term, as you point out here, about making mindful decisions with the way that you structure your year, the way that you structure your large, the larger questions of your life, right? The how you answer those, and I think it's coming just recognizing what you value. I think it's Stephen Covey's, you know, the set, the very influential Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Yeah, is he's always talking about like if you don't sit down and figure out what your values are, you'll always be chasing some goal that's not really your goal. You'll be ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. You will never make those truly mindful decisions about what's important to you. Too many of us live without really ever stopping to think, why am I doing this? Like, do I really want to be doing this? Mm, that's is so this true. something you know? Yeah, <laughs> that, absolutely. That, actually meets my goals or helps me to meet my goals? Am I just saying yes to this because I feel like I have to or or whatever, you know, asking yourself those super hard questions. I think I mentioned this in the book, how my husband and I were talking about trying to adopt a, another child and, uh, you know, cause we had one and lost one, but we just like, we didn't want to ha- raise an only child. And we had to have this kind of come to Jesus moment. We're just like, we don't even have time to talk about this. Like, you know, like, yeah. what are we, what are we doing? And part of mindfulness is recognizing when you're influenced by a cultural standard rather than, say, talking to God or, you know, really praying about something. And we just were like, well, it doesn't seem right to only have one child or, you know, what will people think about us if we only have one child? You know, like all these other things not whether it was right for us, like, should this be our family the way it is now? You know, absolutely. that's what I mean by mindfulness. It's very hard to get to that point. It's a point of truly accepting the life that you've been given, the gifts you've been given, uh, the family you've been given, um, without, without envy, you know, and it's so hard in the age of social media where we're constantly exposed to people who seem to have the life that we want, right? But seem to is is part of the part of the issue there. Um, but I had to I had to do a lot of struggling to get to this. Like, well, you know, everybody's family looks different, and this is just what our family is going to look like. That's just one example of many. You know. Absolutely, I. 
I, I loved what you said about um, having the courage to either, or the mindful, you know, mindfully thinking through your life and either coming to terms with and accepting the decisions you've made, truly accepting mm-hmm. them, like you said, being content or making a different choice then. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And, um, and I, and I think that that, that's something that, um, I think is so important too, like you said, for contentment there, you know, I mean, we made certain choices in our family, like we're a dual academic family, but we don't, we don't both teach full time because I chose mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to be a part-time adjunct. And that's a choice I made very willingly and that I wanted to make, but it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't feel like you said, envy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I might feel envious because David gets to go be at campus all day. He gets to do advising and mentoring with students. I never get to do that, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And I'll have my moments where I get, you know, I feel a little ugly on the inside and I have to remind myself, I made this choice for a reason. And if yes. I had to go back, I would make it again. <laughs> you know, it's yes. not, it's, it's something that I, I wanted for myself and for my kids and whatever. And that, it really does help to remember that I made that decision. I did make that decision mindfully yes. at the time. Yes, you, know? you did. And to go back to that, yeah. you know, that decision as a choice you made is very empowering. And it's the same with marriage. You know, marriage is hard, right? Yeah, but like yeah. We always focus on, we forget what we're getting and we focus on what we're not getting, you know? Um, yeah. And it's a decision we made and look at the things that I'm getting because of this decision, you know, and the Mm -hmm. things that you're getting by choosing to work adjunct are more time with your family. And you would never trade that. I know you well enough to know that that is huge and it is huge, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, you know, the and I and I always try to remember those times, too, that um, for a lot of people who are contingent it's a really big problem and those, and, and those people really need a full-time job our family is right. I feel like I'm one of the few adjuncts that for me it's actually a blessing that I can work part-time and I try right. to always remind myself of that that not everybody can you know not every that's job right. is something that you can just choose to do part-time if you have mm-hmm. small kids and that's a, a, a blessing um, so I really appreciated chapter five because I think it kind of put you put into words some things that I've been thinking about for maybe a while but didn't necessarily have the words to say um, mm-hmm. And I think um, I think it's so nice too that you place that chapter about being mindful next to chapter six, which is where you talk about the soul shelf, because mm-hmm. I think that those are a very good pair. So tell tell our listeners what is the soul shelf and and what's on yours right now, if you don't mind <laughs> yeah. sharing. Yeah, um, I it's funny because I thought originally of writing a book just called Soul Shelf because I'm just a kind of person who thinks through books and I just feel like the the main thing in my life is to find the books that I can return to that I know do the work for me that I need to do right? in the sense of help me to to remember something that I've forgotten is usually the way I would put it, you know, or mm-hmm. live in a space that is really significant to me because it reminds me there's beauty in the world. Like Kristen Lovren's Daughters, one of my favorite novels. Tell me you've read this. I have not yet, but now I want to. Once it, um, everything you okay. said about it in this book makes me want to read it. Okay, yeah. Make sure you get the Tina Nunnally translation. I will. Um, it's just, I mean, I also really love Norway. I finally went to Norway last year um, and kind of got to see parts of the country that Kristen Lovenstutter said in medieval Norway. But there's something about that novel that makes you just grateful to be alive. And that's, <laughs> I think, the thing, the main thing that makes something fit on my soul shelf, the thing that encourages my soul, that speaks to my soul is, does it make me in some way grateful to be alive and I'm happy about the things that I have, the people that I'm with, the gifts that I've been given? 
um, you know, and, and kind of expands my vision to really have that kind of perspective. I guess really what I'm talking about is perspective. And that's why Marie Kondo, as we've talked about her on. Yes, um, I know. I was thrilled to see it in the book because we did that whole episode about it. Yeah, because that's why she's on my soul shelf. Because when I read that book, it inspires me to focus on the things in my life that actually spark joy, to to use her term, but that are significant to me. And then let go of the rest because the rest is actually a hindrance to me. You know, to to and that inspires me, right? Like that speaks to my soul. So reading that uh, encourages me. So that's the kind of thing that I that I like to have on my shelf that I know that I can count on when I'm down uh, to to return to that to to reinvigorate to set the spark, whatever. Um, I I I loved that too. And you didn't necessarily say it this way, but it made me think too. So often, sometimes I think as academics, we we feel like oh. I ought to be reading these texts. They seem mm-hmm. important or, you know, um, everybody says this is a big deal, but I just don't like it, but I guess I'm supposed to read it. And that's another thing <laughs> I loved about the soul shelf is that it's about what, like you said, what makes you feel alive? What, what speaks to your soul? What helps you reorient yourself? Not, this is my most important books, you know, that I feel like I should be reading out of some sense of obligation, you know? And yes. Yes. Yeah. No, in fact, um, I think I mentioned this in the book, but I remember as an undergraduate reading Virginia Woolf's comment about that. And it was like an introduction to Virginia Woolf. It wasn't even, I wasn't reading her letters or journals or whatever, that her father had said, you know, don't worry about what other people say that you should read. Just read what you want to read. Virginia Woolf, you know. Love it. (laughs) And ever since then, I was just like, yeah. I mean, this is me as an undergraduate going, yeah, like, yeah, there are so many books out there and there's even more now. Oh my gosh. Have you seen the figures on the number of books that are published every year? It's like exponential growth. Every yeah. Year. It's kind of overwhelming. A little it's bit. really overwhelming, you know, and it can really make you crazy and you can go like kind of the blinkest route and try to get things reduced to a nugget. And I don't, I mean, I don't disapprove of blinkest and what they're trying to do, but you can't reduce a novel to a nugget. You know, that's, the whole heresy of paraphrase thing. That's not what you get out of a novel, right? It's not some like series of ideas or whatever. What you get is something deeper that you can't kind of take a shortcut to. So why would you want to spend time with a friend? If a book is a friend and other people have made this argument, like Alan Jacobs makes this argument, Wayne Booth, like they're a companion that's going to help you to see something for a while. Why would you want to spend time with a companion that's not going to actually expand your horizons right like when you put it in those terms you're like your life's too short to spend it reading things that that aren't i'm not saying that they don't agree with you god forbid i mean i'm not talking about the echo chamber you know i'm talking about something and if in effect the opposite of that something that will help me to see something i haven't seen um expand my vision challenge me even a little bit sometimes that makes perfect sense yeah and and um because there's also, I mean, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm a person who hate reads sometimes. Like I will purposely <laughs> yeah. read something that I know I'm going to disagree with, but I, but it's because I want to, to, challenge, yeah. to challenge myself to see that other perspective. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's kind of, but a lot of times if I'm going to do that, it will be with an eye to podcasting about it or something. But in my kind of leisure time, that's never the stuff I read. The things right. I read in my leisure time, like you said, are the books that feel like old friends or, mm-hmm. you know, books that I know. I know, even if I haven't read the book before, if it's by an author that I've read other things by, 
then mm-hmm. I know it reorients and I find something new. One, one of my books that I would say is on my soul shelf that I probably reread every year is Dorothy Sayers' Gaudy Night. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. I've heard you talk about Sayers before and I understand. That book is, she has so much to say. I mean, I I love mysteries, but that's not why I keep going back to that book. Mm -hmm. Why I keep going back to that book is because I feel like she captures in that book the soul of the academic woman in a way that I've never seen anywhere else. Yes. Yeah. And so it's, and And it touches your soul. Yes. It's weird to feel like you read it and and I I think, man, this book gets me. No, (laughs) which is so ridiculous, but it's it's Dorothy Sayers, you know, she understood. It's not ridiculous. Yeah. She understands. And, and uh, there's something about that soul touching that it's, it helps you to remember who you are and why you value the things that you value. And is there anything better than that? You know? No. And, and I think there's a power in owning your choices of literature. Like you say, like the same way as owning your mindful decisions, you know, mm-hmm. and not feeling like you with a thing that, that mean, is so meaningful to you, the book that's, I think that's one reason that I love the kind of rise over the past few decades of people being just unashamed with their love for genre fiction. I love that. Yes. Because, I love it you too. know, I, people are able to say this moves me and I don't care what right. anybody thinks about that I'm that you know that, that I don't I don't care that I'm not reading Ulysses and instead I'm reading this you know exactly sci-fi or mystery novel or whatever um, yeah I totally agree with that now I mean because I'm a literature professor I don't I often tell people I don't really read for entertainment I watch tv for entertainment and I own up for that like you know I watch dumb shows on Netflix because I find that entertaining you know absolutely <laughs> and because I'm trained to read a certain way I can't easily turn that off so that's yeah. why I don't read for entertainment. And that doesn't mean I never read for entertainment. I'm just saying typically I don't, you know. Yeah. So I read for something else. Um, well, there was uh, – we've been talking for a while, and I, I have one more big question, and then we can see if there's anything else that you want to get into that we haven't already talked about. But um, my last kind of uh, main question is I know you talk about multiple times in the book that you're you're only speaking – you're speaking from your own experiences, from your own perspective, like you mentioned, and that readers might be in situations where they don't have access to the same type of flexibility to change routines or to choose a preferred schedule or some of the things that you suggest in the book, mm-hmm. um, but that these concepts are still good for everybody. So bearing that in mind, what parts of the book do you think would be most helpful to people who don't necessarily have that wiggle room, either because they're in a tiny college with a small budget or they're contingent mm-hmm. faculty? What parts do you think would be most helpful? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I do, I deeply feel for people who, uh, for whatever reason, and I love the the little mini list that you just gave there, um, just don't have as many choices, you know, and and so I have been thinking, it's like, if you're an adjunct faculty out there and you happen to be listening to this, just um, pop, you know, you know, pop over to my website and let me know, I'm, I would love to give you access to my retreat for free because, that I just there's a special place in my heart for people who are adjuncting and have been trying to look for full time work and can't get it, you know. So I just want to say that. Thank you. That's um, a, wow. Awesome. <laughs> I would love to just gift uh, the people with that because that's a, that's a struggle. And I think that the the part about being a student of your own energy and learning how to say no, and I think that's chapter three or October, the October chapter called "Women in the Know." Um, <laughs> Learning to have boundaries uh, and and not, especially if you're a woman listening to this, and not be just like feeling like you have to say yes all the time simply because you are in that kind of um, halfway state, you, you can get really trapped by that. Like you can get trapped into, into thinking that your time is not as valuable as other people's time. 
Yeah. You know, and that's a mm-hmm. real danger. Uh, if anything, it's more valuable because you're constantly being trotted. You're like the time that you have is like paid less, you know, so your time is actually more valuable to you because yeah. you get less for what you do. So, and I'm not saying, and I would never say to anybody that they should do their job halfway, you know, but if you are an adjunct in particular employee and the college is not paying you to do your job um, the way they should be paying you, then you need to be careful about how much of your life you give to that job. I'm Thoreauian in my core. You know, Henry David Thoreau is my spirit animal, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, because he like something that you get is the amount of your life that you traded to get for it, you know, and, and people who adjunct do it because they love teaching. They aren't doing it for the money, clearly, you know, or they're trying to get into a place where they can get more of a, of, of something for it, you know, get a full-time job. And the market is just miserable right now, right? Yeah. And then I would also say the mindfulness chapter for the reasons that you spoke about earlier, like be aware of the decisions that you're making. And is it time to kind of cut bait? You know, I'm just talking specifically about the adjuncts. I'm not talking about like people who have families or their colleges are really, really poor. You know, I'm just at this moment talking about being an adjunct professor. Um, but with children... And the people who are like really struggling to maintain career um, and have young children or like two careers, which is what my husband and I did and a young child, we did that for a while. I think the main thing is to just hang in there and remember it will pass. And it, I, I, I tried to write about this as much as I could in the book. Like I really believed that I would never read another book again, Katie, after my son was born. Yeah, I, I, I felt that when I read it. I thought, yep, I've been there like I mean, multiple times. And Great. I've written four books, right? <laughs> you know, but yeah. I, I believed I would never read one. <laughs> but I believed it. I'm not just saying that. Like, it was, I was like. Because <laughs> the, the kid thing, I mean, it kills your attention span for a while. It does. At least the, ba- the baby thing for me, I still struggle with one, like with sitting down and reading all the way through a novel I've never read before without wanting to skip to the end. Yeah. And see what happens in the end because my attention span is, is not what it was before I had kids. So I felt that in a very real way. Yeah. But, but, but it will return. You know, I've got friend, a friend who has three boys and the, the younger one is finally getting to the age where she can kind of return to her mental life. Right. Yeah. Um, because she's homeschooled and done, you know, she's oh, wow, similar yeah. to you. Okay. A really good friend of mine and a brilliant person. Right. But she has struggled with self-doubt because she doesn't have the Ph.D. that she wanted to get and all this stuff because her husband has the full time job, you know, not in academia, but that's another story. Um, but she she has to trust that all that is is there because it is there. Right. She just hasn't had time to let it like let it out, you know. So we have been talking together about specifically about the Virginia Woolf thing, like just read what moves you don't think read what you have to read or what's going to help you figure out your next career or whatever, read what you want to read and let it, let your passion lead you uh, to that next place. Yeah. That's awesome. We spend too much of our time. I mean, this is, and I know this because I live here. Like whenever I get sick, whenever I'm ill, I'm like, this is going to be the way it is the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I am so bad at that. And my husband, it just drives him crazy. He's like, oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, you're always going to be sick, you know. <laughs> but it's, there's something in me that's broken that makes me think, like, I'm never going to be well again. And 
that's why, you know, I was actually really very ill the entire time I was pregnant. So it was horrible. It was like, I had nine months of evidence that I'm never going to be normal again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause we're so easily, we so easily kind of get into habits, which that's a whole other chapter that we didn't even talk about. Um, yeah. but we so easily get to habits. It's true. It's you just, it's like your body decides some, it's like, you just think, Oh, this is the new normal. This is yeah. how my life will be now. And yeah, my husband all the time says to me, it's just one day. Today's just mm-hmm. one day, like, which is really helpful reframe. No, it is. It's extremely helpful. Uh, can, we, can we just pause it for a second? I'm going to try to get the dogs in. Yeah, go um, for it. Sure. Take your time. What they're doing. Buddy. Stop it. Okay. So we'll pause and get back. I thought we should talk about habits. Yeah, Since okay. You mentioned that. Um, Absolutely. Just Let's do because that. Because that is so important. Um, my husband has been doing some, you know, coaching um, with somebody named uh, Fogg, uh, BJ Fogg. And he does, uh, he's written a book called Tiny Habits. And my husband is actually a certified tiny habits coach. This is so important. Oh, and so cool. transformed his life, you know. So he helps people to develop those tiny little incremental things that you can then offload on from your conscious mind onto your unconscious mind that actually make a huge difference. You know, the stuff that runs on autopilot is the stuff that is most of our life. So if you can have better stuff running on autopilot, you're going to free up so much more of the conscious space for other things. So to me, that's been a really important part of managing my own energy, being a student of my own energy, is offloading as much as I can to non-conscious cognition, right? Those, it's like putting your lunch by the door, right, before you go um, to work or hanging your keys in the same place. So you don't have to spend your life looking for your keys, right? It's such a small thing, but boy, it's a huge lever. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I, I, I really, that chapter was great. And I, I, it gave me a lot of food for thought because we're about to be homeschooling, um, because of the pandemic, which we haven't. Yes. Um, and so I'm, I'm in desperate need of, of needing to think of some habits to give structure to our day. Cause that's not that I'm not naturally a structured person. I kind of thrive on chaos. And so, um, I, and I've never had to make my own structure before. Cause I was a public mm. school kid. The structure was given to me, you know? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so it's a little scary to think about, trying to teach my kids at home with two other kids also at home. So I, that chapter was great because mm-hmm. I thought, okay, you know, if I can try to make some new little habits for our day that we can all do together, once it becomes habitual, it won't feel like I'm trying to claw some order out of the chaos every day. <laughs> That's right. Right. And the more you can set up like that, it's better for the kids too, right? Because they know what to look for and um, they'll even start enforcing it for you. Right. <laughs> That's so true. Yes. Cause they, yeah, yeah, they're, they're creatures of habit too. That's a great point. Particularly my, my daughter, because she's on the autism spectrum, she likes things to be the same or notices yes. if they're not more than the other yes. kids. And so she does, it's true. She helps me to maintain routines. Um, <laughs> more than so my, great. my third, my third born is like me. He's an extrovert who kind of thrives on chaos. And so he's never going to be the one who goes, mommy, remember we were supposed to do this thing. We didn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's just off doing something crazy um was there anything else besides the besides the importance of habits was there anything else from the book that we haven't talked about already that you really just wanted to put out in the interview and and kind of touch on um as a really important part of the book you know I actually think my um 
favorite chapter, is, I think, is the May chapter where um, it's called, I think it's called uh, What Momentum? Like recognizing when you're exhausted. Uh, Ooh, yeah, not, yeah. Not mm-hmm. trying to push yourself through that. I, I really actually feel like that's one of the most important things I've learned in the 20 years that I've been teaching is, you know, this is a career. And, and we talked about this at the very beginning when it's like, we can't be working all the time. That's ridiculous, right? But it also means truly recognizing when you're tired and taking a real break. Because the real break is the thing that's going to, to energize you, you know, for the future. So I, I just, it's, this is pretty late in, in May or in August for me to be taking a break, but I just got back from the lake and, and it's like, now I'm ready to, not, you know, I have to really sit down and get to work, but I'm ready, you know, because I, I flushed it, you see, for that whole last week. Um, cause I spent like the summer working on the retreat and then I was just like, I really need a real break where I'm not thinking about this. I'm not really answering email. I'm just kind of doing triage on email. That, I just can't emphasize that enough for people who are out there who are frustrated. If you can't get it done during the time that you've allowed yourself, and preparation, as I say, always expands to fill the time you give it, then give it a minimum amount of time. If you don't get it done, then you just have to let it fly. <laughs> See what happens. You know? um, you're the one with the PhD. You can go in the classroom and um, you're a teach out of that PhD. Stop worrying so much. You know, Let it go. I so really I was kind liked... of combining two points there together, but they're important to me. Absolutely. Well, and I loved when you were talking about, when you talked about how some of your best, most creative ideas for classes, specific like individual class periods, c- came from not necessarily having a plan. Exactly. Um, yes. Because that's happened to me too. And I think I think that's happened for a lot of people, but it's yes. like, then you get scared to lean into that and plan yes. to not have a plan <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, or force yourself to be like, you know what, I was up with the baby and that's it. And you know what, like, I'm just going to have to like really expand my mind and just say like, what do the students really need? That's a good way to get through that too, that, that, to let those creative juices flow. Like, think like they do. What do they really need? And it usually is like letting go you're letting go of control and you're throwing it back to them. This is what they really need. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's Absolutely what I mean by do. win-win. That's one of the concepts that's kind of at the center of the book is that win-win idea. Less work for you, more work for them. I don't mean bad work. I mean like engagement, not busy work, you know, that they are <clears throat> leading out and you are letting it happen. That's a win-win. Absolutely. And it, and it truly is because the win-win also fits with another point that you make often in the book regarding teaching and, and working with students, which is that they, you learn the best when you're trying to teach somebody else. Mm-hmm. So giving them opportunities to teach each other in the classroom helps, yes. ingrains it into their minds more. And I, I think yes. that's, that's so true. When I read that, when, when I read that on the page, I thought, Oh my gosh, that's, that's absolutely right. Because I learned the most, like, at least I teach, I teach Bible study at church, but I learn way more when I'm teaching at church yes. than if I go attend Bible study and just sit and listen. Exactly. And so you have to also tell the students, that's why you're doing it. You're not doing presentations because I think it's, you know, really entertaining for me, you know, believe yeah. me. I've heard, I can't tell you how many presentations on like white noise or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, here's that point again, you know, whatever there I'm doing it because that is how, that's what they're going to remember of all of the things that they read for that class. They're going to remember what they did their presentation on. You know, because you you learn what you what you teach. And so but my point is, tell the students that's why you're doing it. Like some recent pedagogical research indicates very clearly that if you are more engaged, you will remember more. 
That's why we're doing this. You know, don't let them sit and guess why you're trying to do that. Like I'm just doing this to torture you or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, that's, that's absolutely true. They want to know why, why, you yeah. know, what's, what's the point? Um, to know why. Yeah. Well, and particularly with writing, I, I, I used to have mine do start every class writing for five or 10 minutes just yes. on paper and which is great but, yes and when they would always push back and because a lot of them are scared or they or the, mm-hmm. what, the perfectionist ones hate that because they oh, want they time do. to revise and they you know yeah. whatever and I and, and it would always be a frivolous topic I mean I, I would I would walk in and say tell me about the best plate of food you ever ate or something I mean nothing you know right. nothing important but even with the <laughs> low stakes they would still hate it and I we would have to have a talk about how frequency makes you better and here's yes. the research and yeah um because they don't, you know, and, and I think that, that that helps them to be at peace with, oh, okay, I don't have to do my best work, and there is a reason. This is not mm-hmm. torture, like you said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I feel like that's one thing that I've really leaned into, as you you put it, in my years of teaching, as being just much more verbal with the students about why I'm doing what I'm doing. So they, and I'll say, for, research shows that forced spontaneous sessions of writing makes you most improve as a writer. That's why I'm doing this five minutes of writing that you have to do, right? You know, because this is a forced spontaneous writing exercise and I'm just giving you a chance to grow as a writer. So I explain that to them every single time I have in-class writing. So I suppose that's also a win-win too, particularly if you have a win-win situation like you talk about, because if you have them writing about anything personal, then also then you get to know them better. Just oh, that's true. Class yeah. Reading. So it's mm-hmm. another thing that's doing two things at once. <laughs> mm-hmm. which, yeah. Which I love that part of the book too, because I, 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 I am in the boat with you because you talk in the book about being a last minute person sometimes. And yes. I've always been a last minute person. And as a last minute person, I love anything that does more than one thing or <laughs> that, you know, or that, or that conserves my energy and is also better for them, which you talk about a ton, you yes. know, um, putting more, giving more, put the ball in their court more, not, bec- not just because it's easier for the teacher though it often is. Um, and yes. I lo- but I love that too, Christina, that, you know, so often I think we, we tend to judge ourselves as teachers by the amount of effort, which I think you, you oh, talk crazy. over and over about how that's a stupid metric. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> like, is totally stupid. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, I did a ton of work. That's really great. But did the students really come out with anything more because you did so much work? You know, no. Okay, well, who really got the best, you know, the best of that? Nobody. So, but you're right. It's it's so counterintuitive in some ways and, and kind of counter our academic culture too, right? Like your training as a grad student, I think is a little bit antithetical to that. Like you're, you're, you're almost conditioned as a grad student to think like, okay, I've got, I'm becoming the expert now. And that means showing my credentials and, you know, speaking out of my expertise and sage on the stage. Right. Yeah. That is the opposite of what good teaching is. And, and it's the sooner that a teacher can learn that the better off they are. And isn't it just also true about like, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording just the two of us that if you are confident in your credentials and who you are as an academic, as a scholar, you don't have to prove it. You can just be there and ask questions and be generous and be magnanimous with your students. That's, that's what I strive for. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think that that is, uh, so important. I, you know, cause as young teachers, yeah, you're right in grad school, particularly, and, and I'm not, I'm not knocking I'm not knocking the comps process because it was it was huge oh, yeah. and it gave me. But I think comps kind of gives you that idea. <laughs> it yeah, kind of it implies that you need to know everything about everything. Right. Or at least about everything about these things. 
Right. And right. then, you know, like that. Um, and then you spend time after that on a dissertation, getting ever more and more and more and more deeply knowledgeable about one specific thing. And it's tough to pull back out of that and like, you know, resurface and then try to teach, you know, just regular, not regular stuff, but other things to students. Right. To regular um, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, think they don't necessarily care about my dissertation topic right now. They need to know how to write an essay <laughs> that yeah. will help them pass, you know. Um, yeah. On my video retreat, I kind of like look right at the camera and I just say, you know what? You have to remember most of our students are not going to become professors. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just end of the story. Right. You, you can't go on what you liked as a student. You just can't. I learned this when I was teaching high school and I learned about learning styles and took a learning styles inventory. You know, like I was the kid who always hated group presentations because I didn't learn the best that way, mm-hmm. but I was the one destined to become the professor. Right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so the students may not like the group presentations, but the research is pretty clear that that's how they learn the best. So you just have to get over yourself and remember that they're not all going to become professors and maybe one of them will become a professor. You know, that's an important thing. That's, that's really true. I, I had the chance. Um, I, I have, I haven't done this nearly as much as you because, you know, I haven't, I haven't been uh, teaching full time, but I had the chance last year to mentor a, a first year adjunct at my college who had never, I mean, she hadn't, she hadn't been trained in her graduate program to, she hadn't taken any pedagogy classes and she kind of got thrown into the deep end with, and was adjuncting, like doing three or four classes at the same time. And because I'm not teaching full time, I had the time and our department had said, would you mind kind of being there for her and just helping her to kind of get her feet. But that's one of the things that she literally said to me, Katie, I don't, I don't understand because I, like she, she was floored that they didn't all want to be there or that they didn't necessarily want to, they weren't uh-huh. excited by the same text because she was thinking about what kind of student she was, just like you said, yep. you know, and she had this to do this huge mental shift and going, oh, I have to take them as they are. Yep. You know, I can't, I can't think of them as, like as what I was like, because I'm the type of person who chose to become a college teacher, you know, exactly. um, but it was so interesting watching her make that connection for the first time. Yeah. Um, and it's especially obviously the case for high school. If you teach high school and I do have a special place in my heart for that, because that is a hard, hard job for those reasons, you know? So if you, and I'm always, I, I do um, consulting for supervision for our um, high school student teachers like I you know I've been doing oh, this for yeah, years cool. so part of the job that I absolutely love and I've got now former students who could be my son's teacher next year you know so wow. it's, kind of, it's like it's important work you know and I'm always telling them that you will know if this is not a right job for you teaching high school is if you you know love your subject matter more than you love your students you know you gotta love your subject matter but when you're teaching high school you have to love your students first now, I think yes. you do have to love your students first as a college professor, too, but that can go together. In high school, it doesn't go together. It's like you really got to love them first and then show them the way, you know, to yes. your subject. So, yeah. Oh, that, that that was actually that's why I traded. I was I was a second yeah. minor and an English major yeah. in undergrad. Yeah. And I and thankfully at my college, they got you in the classroom as soon as humanly possible, just observing like once Good. a week so you could figure out if it was for you. And I did that first semester and I thought this is not for me for yeah. the exact reason you said, because I thought yeah. I'm here for English. I'm not here for these 
albeit lovely students. That's not why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, I think that, um, I think that was an experience I had over and over and over kind of reading through the book is, is I would, I would read, I was reading something that you had written in this book and I would think, you know what, that's something that happened to me or that's something that I thought of, but I never really thought of it that way or had the words to say it. So also I just want to say thank you for this book because it really did feel like kind of a way that you were taking my own thoughts and reorganizing them in a way that that made more sense or that connected them to something deeper um you know or something that is that encouraging renewing kind of way to think about teaching in a way you know especially because as an adjunct often it feels so pragmatic like yeah um i gotta i gotta get this done because i only have so much time or i need to get Mm -hmm. i'm teaching this class because i need to get paid or you know whatever Mm -hmm. so i think it was really helpful to kind of um reconnect me back to some of that stuff I'm so glad I really appreciate you saying that um, well I think that we are about at an hour so I think we're going to be done but thank you so much Christina for coming and talking about the book um, for our listeners once again Christina's new book is The Flourishing Teacher Vocational Renewal for a Sacred Profession and we will ha- also have a link in our notes to the uh, virtual retreat if you want to do that too thank you Christina thank you And uh, listeners, thank you for listening once again to Christian Humanist Profiles. Tune in again soon for the next interview.